0: I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 4. The marks of fruitful hearing. This will conclude a pericope that began in chapter 4 and will conclude in verse 34. Now, in Mark's gospel, we have seen a very positive Response to Jesus's preaching and teaching. He he's been very popular with the people of the land. He has a very popular, very thriving, very robust ministry, and people we have seen have come from all over. They have come out of the woodworks. They have come from east, north, northwest, and south, and everywhere to come and to see Jesus and to hear Jesus and to see his miracles. And we have seen time and time and time again. People aren't content to just casually sit back at a nice, respectable distance. They are smothering him. They can't get close enough. And yet, we've seen that not everybody enjoys hearing and seeing Jesus. Who are those that we've seen thus far in the narrative that that don't quite share the sentiment of the crowd? There are the scribes and the Pharisees. And there, there were two things that Jesus did to poke the bear. We saw that he doesn't teach like the scribes did. The scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis would have had this time-established pattern of appealing to already established teachers and, and using their teaching, use their authority as a stepping stool for their own. When Jesus taught... Jesus didn't appeal to any previous teacher, any previous scholar, any previous rabbi. Rather, he says, I say to you. And that was not missed by the crowds. They were amazed. If you look at the end of Matthew 7, they were amazed. They were astonished, for he taught as one having authority. Secondly, Jesus actually rebuked and chided the scribes and the Pharisees for their mishandling of the law and for placing hard burdens on the people. And he proved it to the people by exposing the hypocrisy of the scribes and then teaching what the law actually said. There is nothing that you can do more to agitate and to get under the skin of a a legalistic hypocrite than to expose their hypocrisy. And we have seen this in chapter 2. Jesus did this in regards to fasting, and he did it twice in regards to the proper use of the Sabbath. And that just really, really agitates them. And he will, he's even going to, uh, uh, I've said poke the bear a lot. Maybe I should come up with a new one, like swap the beehive. He, he is really going to swap the beehive in chapter 7. He's going to confront them on the traditions of the elders. So, suffice to say, the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't like Jesus at all. He was a real problem. And so we have seen that they executed a public smear campaign, and they had sent their underlings, the scribes, out to tell the people that the gospel of Jesus Christ is false. Jesus is not the Christ. Jesus is not from God, and he's not empowered by the Spirit of God. He doesn't do his miracles by the Spirit of God, rather, he is demonic, he is possessed, and he is empowered and commissioned by none other than the ruler of the demons, which is Satan. And so the scribes were given authority, much like Paul was in, in the early chapters of Acts, to excommunicate and to shut out, to put out of fellowship those who persisted in following Jesus, those who continued to proclaim Jesus is the Christ to those who would publicly abide in the gospel. They would be put out of the synagogue. They would lose the right to fellowship. Now, in our culture, being excommunicated from a church may not be a big deal because you can just go down the road to the next church and probably go there. But in this setting, there was only one Synagogue. There was one assembly, one fellowship, and you all know how I love Sam's Noodle House. Imagine my angst if I were to do something atrocious and be uh, no longer welcome. Where else would I go for a delicious bowl of pho? Where would I go? I would go. It's delicious, and you know it. I I, I would I would be able to go nowhere. I have no options. It would be a big blow to me. And and this would only be more so to think you can no longer fellowship with your family. You can no longer be seen in public with other believers. Being put out of the synagogue was a big blow. And you would quickly become a pariah. You would quickly become an outcast in the society. You would be someone to be shunned, someone to be... Avoid and so we see, beginning in chapter Four, we see a developing departure of the people. there There's still a swarm around him, but people are beginning to depart, and inevitably the crowds at large will reject jesus after and, and that's astonishing after everything that he's said, after after everything he's proclaimed, and after all of the backing up of those proclamations by divine power and the affirmation of Scripture. Astonishing. So to explain this to his disciples, to to those who will remain with him, Jesus gave them a parable, which we looked at last time, two weeks ago. He gave the parable of the soils. We considered the hard roadside soil, which resembled the hard-hearted Pharisees, the hard-hearted scribes, who did not follow Jesus at all. They made no profession, to be his disciple they they already knew what they wanted to believe and thus they reject jesus outright they were the hard soil and then we looked at the shallow soil which resembled those who follow jesus with half-hearted commitment they 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 accept jesus they follow jesus under impulse They want to be his disciples because it feels good at the moment. After all, everyone else is doing it. It's popular to be a disciple of Jesus. And and let's face it, he can do amazing things like multiply food simply by blessing it. Who wouldn't want to be on Team Jesus when Jesus can feed you endlessly in the wilderness and do great, great things for you? But under threat of persecution, when things get tough, their commitment quickly, quickly shrivels and dies. And then we looked at the thorny soil, those who followed Jesus with divided hearts, divided loyalties between Jesus and themselves. They they want to follow Jesus, but they also want to follow their own hearts and dreams and wants and needs. And these disciples are eventually choked out by their own desires by riches and pleasures and wants and like the previous soils they are worthless. And then there was the good soil those who followed Jesus with this abiding sustained faith and they demonstrated that they not only received him but they they received his word. They hear they heard Jesus' word. They are the ones who have ears that truly hear. They are the ones who have ears that perceive. And they receive his word and they bear its fruit. And they are the only ones that are fruitful. The last of the soils are the only one that produces fruit. And they are the ones that the sower is desiring. And Mark concludes this this pericope, this, this scene, this scenario, this brief survey of Jesus' parables by using four brief parables. They're much shorter than than the last one we looked at. And he uses them to teach us four marks of those who would bear fruitful hearing. Four qualities that mark fruitful hearing. In verses 21 to 23, we will see that fruitful hearing witnesses obediently. Fruitful hearing witnesses obediently. In verses 24 to 25, we'll see fruitful hearing works expectantly. Verses 26 to 29, fruitful hearing waits dependently. And then the last parable, verses 30 to 34, fruitful hearing walks confidently. Let's consider our first point, verses 21 to 23, where Jesus is teaching that fruitful hearing witnesses obediently. Jesus says, And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden, except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, we'll stop reading at that point and consider this parable. Jesus begins each of these parables or mark rather begins each of these parables by saying that jesus is speak was speaking to them you see that in verse 24 you see that in verse verse 21 24 26 and 30 and there's a little bit of difficulty in in, in understanding precisely who jesus is talking to because who has jesus just finished talking to in verses 11 to 20 you have the crowd at large the smothering crowd and then you have his closer Uh, a more intimate band of disciples, including the 12 and an unspecified uh, number of others. But you have these two specific groups. Who was Jesus just explaining the parable of the soils to, the crowd or the smaller group? What? The smaller group. Okay, and then you would think... Then when, it, when Mark says in verse 21, 24, 26, and 30, and he was speaking to them, would logically be the same group. But if you look down at verse 33 and 34, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. Okay. And he did not speak to them without a parable. That's exactly what was said earlier about the crowd. But he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. That's, a, that's what we call a disjunctive, a contrast. So because of the, verse 34, I have to conclude that Jesus is now returned speaking to the crowd that the explanation that we got of the soils was really something of a parenthetical thought, a parenthetical dialogue, as if Mark put... Push the pause button when Jesus is speaking to the crowd. And he said, by the way, he he would later go on to explain when he was alone with us. And now he has resumed. uh, He's hit unpause and he's resumed playing. And Jesus is now speaking to the crowd again. And he gives them this parable. And he asks this rhetorical question. Why is a lamp brought into a house? Deep, deep, profound question isn't it why indeed i mean the number of hours that philosophers and scholars have settled have have dedicated i mean theses and um uh what's that big old 200 page paper dissertations have been written trying to no I'm, i'm being facetious we we know why lamps are brought into a house now we we have all kind of lamps we We have big lamps, small lamps, fancy lamps uh e- economic lamps, but the majority of the ancient near East lamps were basically like this this is a This is a lamp that Jennifer and I picked up when we were in Israel two years ago, and uh, a lamp would be something very similar to this It would be a a bowl, a little pitcher, a little saucer, basically a little reservoir, and you would you would put oil in it, and then you would either uh, put a little wick that would float in the oil, or this one you could you could put the little wick through this little hole, and the oil would would be soaked up into the wick, and you light the lamp and it provides light and that's that's really what lamps do best is to provide some light and the, the lamp would then give light to dark areas so that, uh, you know, they didn't have electricity. So once the sun goes down, if it's overcast, you know, in your in your home, if you don't have the, uh, 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 a light that you can provide, you're stumbling over things. You're going to be stubbing, you think stepping on a Lego hurts. Imagine stepping on a piece of metal back in the old world. So the light would give light to dark areas so that you can see and you can go about your business uh, in a, in a, where you would otherwise have great difficulty or even possibly harming yourself. And people haven't changed much. And I imagine just as, just as I am quite skillful in dropping things and bumping into things, I imagine in Jesus' day there were many who stepped up to the task of being adept in the same skill. And dropped lamps filled with oil don't work very well when they are dropped. So to keep lamps in a condition where they would work well, what is done with them? do you walk do you walk around does the parable say that people go walking around carrying these lamps to and fro? What does the parable say is done with them? It's put on a lamp stand these would be sturdy tables or even shelves that would protrude from the wall and they would be placed in Secure locations, strategic locations that would grant protection and stability to these little lamps. And they would also be put in such a place that the light that they give off would would be of uh, maximum benefit to those. That just sounds like a bright idea to me. So just as in the parable of the soils, our newcomers, uh, you you have to feed them in on how I work here. So just as in the parable of the soils, Jesus used this image where where, where he used an image of of farming and of sowing of different soils, which, again, was a very common, very much an everyday scene or or uh, experience. He's using another very common uh, experience, and and that's of simply turning on the lights. And here's the point. Lights are put there for a reason. Why is the lamp brought in? The lamp is is lit and is brought in to be placed under a basket, I mean, the, the basket here is the, it would be, would be the large sack used to hold the grain that that, that was used uh, in the previous parable for sowing and farming, and you know it would be an absurd waste of resources to to bring in a lamp that you you've you've bought the lamp with your own money, you've bought the oil with your own money, you've lit it outside, you've uh, you've you've brought it in, and now you take this bag of grain you've which you've had to fill either with your own back or fill by means of purchasing with your own money. You, you, you dump the sack of seed out, and then you take the lamp, put it on the ground, you take the, the bag, you put it over the lamp. That's not what lamps are for. Amazing. And, and likewise, um, neither, neither would be placed under a bed. The, the, the bed in the ancient Near East, for the Jews at least in Palestine, was a simple board pallet. It, Covered, often covered by a simple cloth, and it would it would lay flat on the floor. Uh, they would sleep very, very close to the floor. And when it was when it was time to get up, you would it, the bed was was light enough, it was small enough that you could easily pick up your bed and store it someplace where it wouldn't take up a lot of space. And we see that in uh, several instances where lame men uh, who are who are on a bed and they're healed, Jesus tells them, take up your bed and walk. So the beds were small and light enough that they could be um, that they could be picked up and, and removed. <clears throat> They're also, which means that they were made out of wood. Now, what would happen if you put a, a wooden board pallet over a, a lit lamp filled with oil? Yeah, it caused a big light, probably an undesired light. So, both of these images: taking a lit lamp, putting it under a grain seed ba- emptied grain seed bag. Which would be flammable, or under a wood caught pallet board bed thing, which would also be flammable this is something pointless, purposeless, and also foolish and unsafe because both would catch fire if they were placed over the lamp that that is that is common sense everybody knows why the lamp is brought in, and that is to let it shine to to give light and i I just had this most amazing discovery in all the commentaries that I bought uh, over the years. They all agree. It's amazing. They all agree. Lamps are for illumination, not for hiding. It's the most amazing thing I've seen. I'm glad that I bought all those commentaries. Those who have the light are not to hide it. They are to let it shine. They're not to conceal it, they're not to hide it, they're not to prevent it, they're not to, they're not to do anything to hinder the light from doing its job. Now, what is the light here in this text? Biblically speaking, it, light is really the standard metaphor for truth in, in the Bible. In the context of the Gospels, it is the truth of the Gospel message itself. It is the truth of Jesus Christ. That he that he, Jesus is the Messiah, he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, and that the, the the kingdom of God has arrived and is on so to speak is on the doorstep of Israel, and that if they accept their king, if they respond to him in faith, they the people might be granted entrance into the kingdom. Jesus is the lamp the 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 gospel message itself is the light and john the apostle john picks up on this in chapter one of his epistle where he writes in verse four in him was life and the life was the light of men in verse nine there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man so jesus is the is the lamp and his gospel the gospel that attests that he is the Christ, and that he has brought the kingdom of God with him is the light. So what do those who have been given gospel light do with it? Those who have been Jesus' closest disciples might have very well been tempted to think, hey, they, they ought to conceal it. I mean, after all, Jesus himself has begun concealing the truths of his teaching to the crowds. You, you remember that from the last chapter or from the last section and he's You remember what he commands the demons to do when 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 he comes on the scene and they say i know who you are the holy one the son of god what does he tell them to do oh i'm so glad you know who i am now go and tell everybody what what does he tell the demons to do silence do not speak and so there's this temptation to think maybe we should not stop telling people Maybe, maybe the time for grace is over and the time for judgment has arrived. And we see this attitude already festering in the disciples in Luke 9:51 to 56, where there Jesus sends some of them to a Samaritan village and they are rejected. And John and James, the sons of thunder, ask Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down and to consume them? And so maybe they thought Jesus' Jesus's identity is privileged information. It, it is only reserved for those who are special enough to know, only for those who are worthy to know. And those who aren't worthy don't need to be evangelized. Instead, the, the privileged, the worthy, the enlightened, those who are smart enough and intelligent enough to have accepted Jesus, they now have the right, the privilege, the prerogative. They get to call down the hammer of God's judgment on dirty, rotten unbelievers. Can you think of an Old Testament prophet who fell into this trap? Got swallowed by a fish. That changed his mind. Yeah, that's the same attitude Jonah had towards the Ninevites. Those, Those dirty, rotten Ninevites... They, they hate God's people. Look at what they've done. They don't deserve to repent and be saved. Let God's wrath fall on them. Well, God changed his mind. But do you, do you see how concealing the gospel might appeal to the pride and the ego and the flesh of those who have, who have already received it? I mean, after all, I was, maybe they were thinking, I was smart enough to accept Jesus. I was wise enough to see the truth. I discerned that I need to follow Jesus. I'm, I was enlightened and spiritual enough, and those who are dumb enough to ignore him after everything he's said, after everything he's done, after the power that he's demonstrated, maybe they deserve to die in their sins. Maybe they don't deserve the gospel anymore. So I, I think, yes, his disciples could have been very well tempted to conceal the gospel henceforth. They might have been tempted to conceal the gospel henceforth but that's not the plan so Jesus continues and he states the obvious reason for bringing in the lamp which is to put it in a place where it can and it will shine and in so doing give light to those who will benefit from it in response to those temptations of the disciples to think hey we don't need to evangelize we don't need to turn the other cheek when we're rejected when the door is slammed shut on our faith, when we're ostracized, we don't need to go. We don't need to continue evangelizing them. I think in response to those thoughts, Jesus says in verse twenty-two: "For nothing is hidden except to be revealed; nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light." In other words, though the gospel truth is for a time obscured and hidden from those who have up until now, have the opportunity to hear it and to respond to it and will unfortunately ultimately show themselves to reject it, there are others who have not yet heard the gospel. There are others who have not yet had this light shined upon them. And those people will need someone who have been given the light to take the light to them and to offer it to them. The time has come for those who've had ample opportunity, plenty of chances to repent and to believe and to be saved. The time for them has come to a close. The door for them has shut. And that privileged time of being exposed to light and the clarity of the gospel has drawn to a close. For them, the offer of the kingdom and the message of the gospel is, con- is concealed, it is hidden, and it is made a secret. And from that time, the kingdom of God is no longer proclaimed to Israel. Now, if you look at this proverb Jesus uses in verse 22, he's using it to explain the parable in verse 21. He says, For nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. And something that doesn't quite jump out in our English is Mark's usage of some purpose clauses here. There's two purpose clauses in verse 21. There's two of them in verse 22. And it says, nothing is concealed that will not be revealed in 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 Matthew and Luke, in 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 Mark, in the NASB, it says nothing is hidden except to be revealed, and this is one case, one of the few cases where I think the NIV gets it a little better. The NIV usually um, utilizes a little more artistic license, which I'm a little wary about. But this is one case where I think the NIV absolutely nails it. The NIV says whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. Whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open it that that idea of intentionality of purpose of something uh, something that is meant to be it doesn't quite jump out in the NASB so this tells us Mark's usage of these purpose clauses is that there is there's a divine purpose there is a divine intentionality behind the concealing of the gospel That purpose, that reason that the gospel is concealed is, get this, so that it can be revealed. It is hidden so that it can be made clear to all. Now, doesn't that, it sounds almost like a paradox, right? I'm going to hide something so that I can bring it out. Well, why don't I just leave it out to begin with? But there's a point to this, and then think about it. What happens as a result of Jesus' teaching becoming difficult and even down, outright offensive to the people? You, you see this really clearly in John six. Jesus is talking about anyone who doesn't eat my blood and, and drink um, eat my flesh and drink my blood uh, has no part in the kingdom. Anyone who doesn't do that has no part in me. Anyone who is not given to me by the Father cannot come to me. You aren't you able if if the Father has not given you to me, and in John six61 uh, it says that many of these things were uh, the people found difficult to understand, and so many of his disciples walked no longer with him. Jesus began to lose popularity with the crowds, and that reinforces the Pharisees. And, and they're plotting with the Herodians and the chief priests and the Sadducees on, on how to kill Jesus. Now, fast forward to Mark. I mean, you're in Mark. Duh. Fast forward to Mark 15. Flip over there. If you hit Luke, you've gone too far. Mark 15, look at verse 8. This is Jesus' before Pilate, and, and uh, uh, Pilate has brought Jesus and Barabbas out. And there was a custom where, where uh, Pilate would release one, per, one prisoner to the people uh, at their whim. It was kind of a way that he could appease the crowds. Look at verse 8. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? They. Who's the they? Not the chief priests. Not the scribes. who, Who has the ear of Pilate? Who is putting the pressure on Pilate here? Crowds. The crowds shout back, Crucify him. He says, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. I mean, think of this large, smothering crowd. Up until now in the gospel, they want to hear him. They want to follow him. They want to see more of him. Now the crowd is crying out, shouting out in a tumult, crucify him. And wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas And handed him over to be crucified. Now the scribes and the Pharisees they had a they had a a a higher guilt. They 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 had a hand in the murder of Jesus, no doubt. But this could never have been done without the pressure that the crowd put on Pilate to demand that Jesus be executed. Now let's, let's follow this through. If Jesus hadn't been executed by the Romans on the cross. You don't have Calvary. You have no resurrection. You have no ascension. You have no sending of the Holy Spirit. You have no heavenly inheritance. You have no hope of a resurrection that would be like Jesus' resurrection because Jesus wouldn't have been resurrected. You have no hope of heaven, and the scriptures remain unfulfilled, the gospel message incomplete. The concealing of the gospel results in the departure of the crowds, which results in the major shift of public opinion concerning Jesus, resulting in the opportunity for the leaders to manipulate the crowds into pressuring Rome to put Jesus precisely where he needs to be to fulfill his messianic mission. Do you see the divine intentionality? I don't see any heads. Do 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 you see the purpose? Do you see the intention? the concealing was the means by which God was putting the lamb precisely where he needed to be to be slaughtered. So for a time towards the Jews, the gospel had to be concealed. The the proclamation that the kingdom was at hand, that the king was present, that needs to be hushed. Because those who didn't have ears to hear, those who didn't have a heart to hear, to believe, those who really weren't his disciples anyway, they have a part to play. And that is to serve as God's divine means for handing over the king to be slaughtered. Robert Stein says, in, his un, in their unbelief, those who opposed Jesus unknowingly carried out the divine plan that the Son of God give his life as a ransom for many. The light needed to be covered. It needed to be hidden and concealed so that the lamp might become hated and rejected and tossed aside and put outside the camp and fulfill his purpose and, as a result, be placed on the lampstand for all to behold. Now, post-resurrection on the day of Pentecost, turn over to Acts chapter 2. We see some of the preaching of Peter in 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God has performed through him in your midst just as you yourself know. I imagine some of these men were prob- had probably accompanied Jesus during his ministry. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. You go down to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. And then look at down for verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, the light had to be concealed to get Jesus to where he needed to be in order to do what he came to do. And there was coming for the t- for the disciples at the time and ample opportunity to preach the gospel openly. They're going to get a little preview of that in Mark chapter 6. They're going to they're going to be sent out to preach, but it doesn't kick into high gear until Acts chapter 2. And since then, and until he returns, the preaching ministry that began with the apostles and and that has been passed down from disciple to disciple to disciple to disciple is the means by which Jesus Christ draws people into his kingdom. And that is how God saves people. That is how God saves people. He gives them the light of the gospel through the means of a preacher and he saves some of them. Just like the soil. And everywhere the gospel goes it will in some places land on good soil. And what is needed is an obedient response on the part of Jesus' disciples and that takes us back to the original point. Fruitful hearing witnesses obediently. Fruitful hearing witnesses obediently. Those who have ear to hear, they take the seed that was sown in their heart to save them, and they bring them brings them to Christ, and they, in turn, sow it to others. The seed that was sown in the field of their own heart, they sow in the fields of others. Let me ask you, who can we be witnessing to today? Friends? Family? co-workers, Our neighbors? Fruitful hearing witnesses obediently. The God that has called us to salvation calls us to call others to believe the gospel. Fruitful hearing is to take the light that was shown to us and to show it to others. Now, there are two considerations that I want to bring before you that I think will make your sowing a little more joyful, a little less uh, um, more joyful one is to not think too highly of ourselves don't think too highly of yourself as as in with the parable of the soils was there anything told about the sower did we were we told how uh, charismatic he was how how much charm he had how skillful he was were we told where he was trained what his pedigree was if if he had a nice suit or what kind of car he had Or how good looking he is? What about his ability uh, to to sow? Did did he have a good arm? Was, was Was he rightly trained? We're not told anything about the sower. We're told absolutely nothing about the sower's ability to ensure a fruitful harvest. And that's the point. The potency for the fruitful sowing lies not in the sower. The potency for fruitful sowing lies in the seed and in the nature of the ground upon which it is sown. In other words, the gospel is enough and the condition of people's hearts determines how they respond to Jesus. It's not you. It's not, it doesn't matter how charming you are. It doesn't matter how good-looking you are. It doesn't matter what you try to do to make the gospel more attractive because it's not you who persuades souls to convert and to have faith, Paul says in Second Corinthians four seven. He calls himself. He says that those who who, who share the gospel are we have these treasure. The, the, the gospel is the treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay, in earthen vessels, in in in, in pottery, and it, let's just say that the jars to which he was referring to were used for. Uh, it wasn't the fine china. I'll put it that way. So don't think too highly of yourselves. The second consideration to make your sowing more joyful is to think more highly of Jesus. Think more highly of Jesus. The potency for the fruitful crop lies in the seed and in the nature of the soil, not the soil. The gospel alone. The gospel alone, clear and simple, plain, unmodified, the gospel alone is sufficient to save men and women. Earlier in Second Corinthians 4, Paul says that it is a shameful thing to, to even modify or to enhance the gospel by using craftiness or he, or he uses the idea of diluting something. Uh, imagine you have a, a, a wine and you pour water in it what happens to the quality of the wine? You, as you put more water in it or as you put more counterfeit stuff in it, the good stuff becomes less and less and less in, in parts per million or, or whatever. I don't, I don't know how you measure wine. But um, th- that was a common way that, that people in the old world would try to uh, pull a fast one when they were selling goods. If they were selling wines or perfumes or any, any kind of a liquid, is they would pour in cheap counterfeits that would blend in with the product. And Paul says that trying to to make the gospel more attractive, trying to make it more palatable, trying to make Jesus less offensive to sinners who don't want to hear him is like pouring cheap counterfeit stuff into a fine wine. And that's a shameful thing to do. The gospel alone is sufficient to save. I suggest we think more highly of Jesus in the gospel and 1 Peter two nine says uh, amongst several privileges that every believer has we have the privilege in addition to it being a duty we have the privilege of being able to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We get to proclaim his excellencies. I'm sure Everyone here know what it's like to try to have someone, uh, um, try to have a salesman try to sell them something that you know you don't need or want. They know you don't need or want it, but their job is to try to make a commission, and so they're trying their best to, to make this thing sound like the greatest thing since sliced cheese. I worked at Staples. Believe me. I know what it's like to try to convince someone that you really do need to consider that three-year warranty for that printer, and you need to get a... a, a you know this this toner that's going to come with it it's only going to last for about 12 pages you really need to you need to get this you need to get that they come in expecting to buy a $50 printer that they saw in the catalog and they walk out paying 300 bucks and every, and and they they didn't want to spend that money the salesman knows they didn't want to spend that money but but the difference that it makes when you yourself have tasted the quality of that wine or going back to the Staples thing, you yourself know the quality of that printer. When you know who Jesus is, when you ha- know the depth of your sin and your guilt, and you know what it's like to be forgiven, and you have seen how excellent of a person he is in Scripture, and you know that he is faithful and true and that he is a witness of the truth and you know that he is the sovereign lord and you know that he is the one coming back with all authority and power and that he is the one rightly to be worshiped and praised it makes it a lot easier it makes it less of a duty more of a privilege to get to proclaim his excellencies to others and so yes it's a duty because he commands it in the Great Commission, but it is a privilege, it is an honor to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. That was point one. Now point two. I'm just kidding. We're going to look at points two, three, and four next week. But let's pray, and then we have a, we'll have a time of communion. And then we'll close our service. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy and your graces in revealing yourself to us, in giving us ears to hear, Lord. We know that truly hearing ears is a gift that you have given. It is a prerogative of God. It, it, it is a working of God to open up closed ears to break up hard untilled soil to remove stone, uh, hearts of stone and to put in hearts of flesh and to make men and women receptive to the truth. We know that, uh, that that is a work that you do. And we thank you for the mercy that you have shown sinners like us by giving us those hearts. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the assurance of complete forgiveness of sins, and for the promise of eternal life, and for the promise of a heavenly inheritance. We thank you for being so good to us. Help us to be more mindful of, of these promises. Help us to be more sure of our salvation, and, and give us boldness. Give us clarity of mind so that we may more freely and more joyfully share this gospel with those that you place in our, in our fields or rather in the in whose fields you might place us to sow. Give us boldness to do that. Give us joy to do that. And be glorified as your as your gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Amen.